there, and welcome to episode 49 of Bokum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most adoring host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Rides. This episode will cover episode 20, Cloth of Gold, and episode 21, Goodnight Baby, Time to Die. Yes, season four is rapidly drawing to a close, but I am not going to finish this season out without talking about my favorite episode with one of my favorite people. Yes, Mr. Daniel Budnick is back to talk my favorite episode with me, and I know we're all much happier for it. And since Dan is joining me, that means that there will be spoilers discussed for Goodnight Baby Time to Die. Please check the description. It will be timestamped there. And yes, of course, I've got somebody watching something and talking very loudly in the next room. Please enjoy the ambiance. Also... A minor trigger warning, if you're going to be watching the episode Cloth of Gold, there is mention of sexual assault in it. I will not be discussing it because it actually happens in spoiler territory. So don't have to worry about it here, but if you are going to give the episode a watch, just a little heads up. All right. With all that being said, let's go to Hawaii. He was opening some presents and reading this note when he collapsed. Happy birthday, it's your last. Ah, cream of society, and Denna? Yeah, con men, grifters, pimps, assorted playmates. See if there's a typer inside of it. Well, well. Two of our leading real estate operators, huh? Here he comes again with a big hassle. Move it, girls. What happened to your partner? He got sick. He just got sick and, and died. Yeah, one minute everything's going great. You know, he's uh, opening his birthday presents, everything's fine, and then suddenly, pow. Kind of makes you think. Nobody touched him. Nobody. Black magic. Uh, you figure it out, pal. That's your job. Season 4, Episode 20, Cloth of Gold, air date February 8th, 1972, directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his 17th of 36 episodes, and written by Bennett Foster. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O. Hot scuba action of someone combing the ocean floor and picking something up transitions to a birthday party for Ralph Mingo. After making a lovely speech, he snaps at everyone for crowding him at the gift table. He opens the first gift from a guy named Tommy, a beaded necklace, which Mingo calls for everyone to applaud. The second gift comes with a note that says, Happy Birthday, It's Your Last, along with some Hawaiian that translates to filthy scum, according to business partner and native Hawaiian, Akamai. Mingo looks in the box, moving the tissue paper around to see what's inside, but says nothing. Akamai tells Mingo to forget it and move on to the next one. As he does, he apparently chokes to death on nothing in front of the crowd. 5-0 arrives as the body is being taken away, and Doc tells Steve that something hit Mingo's central nervous system hard and fast, but he doesn't know what yet. It'll make for an interesting autopsy. Inside, Dano shows Steve the note, which he later finds was typed on the typewriter in the house den. The assorted guests are of the criminal element. Akamai and Wallace, Mingo's partners in their somewhat crooked real estate business, are now poised to split things two ways instead of three. Steve asks everyone to arrange themselves as they were when Mingo died. It doesn't look like anyone left. Wallace and Akamai tell the order of the gifts open, but they can't find the little box the note was attached to. 
Mingo was the only one who saw what was inside the box, and no one saw what happened to the box. Wallace reenacts Mingo's choking death, and Akamai said no one touched him because Mingo didn't like to be touched. Steve asks how many people they've swindled or sold phony real estate lots to. Wallace laughs and says about 4,000. Who else wanted Mingo dead? He wasn't exactly well-liked, but nobody turns down a party invite. Doc tells Danny and Kono that Mingo's suffocated. He shows Danny the blood slides. He says there's an alkaloid in Mingo's blood. He was poisoned, but not by ingestion or puncture. It's murder or suicide cause unknown. Danny says that's not good enough. They need to know what the poison was and how it was administered. Akamai gets a similar note to the one that Mingo got, but goes swimming despite Wallace's objections. Wallace takes the threat seriously and calls 5-0. Danny and Kono show up and talk to Wallace, and is still very alive Akamai, their ever-present lady friends lounging with them. They take a look at the note, which says Akamai's date of death is actually the next day. Akamai found it under the bedroom door, but has no idea who put it there. Wallace says he was asleep at the time, but Akamai suggests that maybe he wasn't. Wallace then suggests that maybe Akamai wrote the note to throw suspicion off of himself. I feel these two might be turning on each other. Anyway, Akamai says if they want to babysit Wallace, that's fine, but he's going fishing with his houseboy, Manoa. Aloha! As Wallace, Danny, and Kono go into the house, Kono spots a dead fish in the aquarium and points out that there's a dead fish and a dead man in the same house. They go to check out Akamai and Mingo's rooms. There's video equipment set up in Mingo's room. According to Wallace, it's a sales tool to help lure hapless mainland investors by showing them views nowhere near the properties they're selling. It's set up in Mingo's bedroom because even though he didn't like to be touched, he did like to watch, if you know what I mean. Wallace would show Danny, but he doesn't want to be pinched for pornography. Akamai and Manoa take the boat out to the reef and jump in to do some spearfishing. Akamai shoots at a sea turtle. As he attempts to dislodge his spear, he kicks loose some reef, which comes down on him. Manoa saves him, pulling him to the surface and taking him back to land. Wallace and the girls meet them on the beach, but Akamai insists he's okay. He thanks Manoa for saving him, insisting that he take his watch. Wallace tells the girls it's time to go back to the house. Show's over and Akamai needs his rest. Judging by the looks they exchange, I'd say they do not trust one another. At headquarters, 5-0 discusses the suspect pool. The crowd at the party was resentful, but not much motive for murder. Chin-Ho runs down the staff, including the cook, maid, and houseboy Manoa. The cook can't hold a job, Manola's only daughter died, and the maid is the wife of a successful fisherman. Why are they all working at Mingo's house? And if they add customers to the staff and friends suspect pool, they're going to need the computer to narrow things down. Mingo, Wallace, and Akamai have been operating just inside the law, which made prosecution and lawsuits difficult, which is excellent motive. And to top it all off, they still don't know what poison killed Mingo and how. The next morning, Wallace allows the maid to take Akamai his breakfast tray, and she finds him dead, apparently having choked to death just like Mingo. Now Wallace is really terrified that he might be next. This is one of those bad things happening to bad people kind of episodes, and I'm fine with that. I don't mind bad things happening to bad people. And it's not so much that we want to catch the person who's doing the bad things to bad people. We just want to know how and why the bad things are happening to bad people. Because it's set up that Mingo, Wallace, and Akamai are really kind of shitty. And the more we learn about them, the shittier they get. So we know from the outset that the three of them are involved in a real estate business, 
that basically swindles mainland investors. And they do this by showing them land in the brochure and in the videotapes that is definitely on the island, but nowhere near the property that they're selling is. I guess that they're walking enough of a legal line that they're covering their ass just enough that they haven't been prosecuted and lawsuits haven't been successful against them. So we know they're shitty. At this birthday party where Mingo dies, and he comes off as unpleasant from the absolute get-go when he yells at everyone to back off, there's also something a little condescending and kind of snide about the way he thanks Tommy for his present saying it's just what I've always wanted there's and everybody you know clap for Tommy it's like something a, a really snide bully might do it just it has that vibe to it I don't know if that was just me or if that was intentional but that's how it kind of came across and then he dies and he does he chokes it to death on apparently nothing all we see is him opening the presents and the second presence you don't it's great the way they set up that second present because you don't see what's inside he moves the tissue paper so he can see but we can't see we have no idea what's in this box but we do know the note calls him filthy scum and the more we learn about him we're like yeah that's pretty accurate i mean dead to rights so when 50 gets there to investigate this random choking Steve basically categorizes the guest list as conmen, grifters, pimps, and assorted playmates. And I'm like, that sounds like a rock and roll party. But he's basically saying that he is surrounded by people that are kind of shitty and shady. So we shouldn't be too surprised that he drops dead at his own birthday party. But it is a mystery as to how he was murdered. Because Steve is pretty sure that it's probably not natural causes. And Doc is like over the moon about the prospect of doing this autopsy because he, the initial examination, I guess, at the scene just suggests to him that something hit his central nervous system hard, but he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know how it got into him. He doesn't know if it was natural or intentional. He is just absolutely thrilled about doing this autopsy. Bless Doc. And 5-0 considers themselves kind of left with uh, Mingo's partners, Akamai and Wallace. Because Steve asks, now that he's dead, how does the shares get split up? They tell him it's just instead of three ways now, it's two. So Steve and 5-0, they kind of focus on Wallace and Akamai. And as a result, the audience ends up focusing on Wallace and Akamai. Now, there are other players in the game. Obviously, there are people who have been swindled. They're the people at the party. Maybe Tommy sought vengeance over the disparaging remarks about his beads. I don't know. But... There are other suspects that are kind of in the peripheral, like the staff, people like that. But we don't really take those suspects seriously. The focus is on Wallace and Akamai. Who's killing who? Because that's what it kind of is set up to look like. What One partner is taking out the other two partners to get the full share of this real estate scam. And it's great because it plays out that way when Akamai gets his note saying that he's going to die the next day and he blows it off. Wallace takes it seriously, and so when they're discussing who could have done this... Got any ideas who uh, put it under the door? No, how would I know? Wallace? Well, don't look at me. I was asleep. Akamai woke us up with this note. How do I know you were asleep? Maybe you were awake. Yeah, what's that supposed to mean? Whatever you want it to mean, pal. Akamai is saying uh, you might have faked being asleep after putting the note under his door and sneak back to bed again. I didn't write that note to you. 
You think I killed Ralph? How do you know Ralph was killed? Well, he's dead, isn't he? Somebody wrote him a note saying he was going to die. Now he's dead. Manoa, let's go out on the reef. They say fishing is good for the soul. Right, boss. How about I change clothes? Maybe you wrote that note to clear yourself of suspicion, huh? How do I know you didn't? You don't. And so you have the two business partners kind of suspecting each other, but we're also suspecting them. So we are just convinced that one is playing the other. There is a game in progress. Who's playing who? And then we get an excellent swerve when Akamai blows everything off, blows off the note, and he goes spearfishing with Manoa. Because as he's spearfishing, this reef comes down on him. He's trying to dislodge this spear because he was shooting at a sea turtle. So I don't know if it was supposed to have been stuck in the actual sea turtle because you don't exactly see what he's pulling it out of. Or if it was like he missed and he's trying to dislodge it from some of the other reef. But as he's doing so, he ends up kicking loose a bunch of other reef and coral and stuff that comes down on his head. And Manoa saves him. So it looks like he's escaped death, even though the note said, you're going to die tomorrow. I mean, you can't help but think about the specter of death that's hanging over him. And he's sort of cheated it. So you're not expecting 100% when the maid goes in the next morning to take him his breakfast tray and oops, there he is dead. Now, great part about this is that, yes, he is apparently having died the same way that Mingo did. Now, Mingo chokes and dies, collapses. We don't actually see him after the fact. However, what we're getting here is Akamai has at some point died sometime prior to the maid's discovery. He is still in the position with his hands up to his throat, his eyes wide, gasping for air. I have no idea if he would actually still be in that position when he was found God knows how long later, but I think it's absolutely 100% hilarious that he is, and I'm not going to be mad about it. I think it was supposed to be more horrific, but I found it more hilarious. I'm a bad person and we all know this. Also, I need to point out that Akamai is played by our favorite secret agent, Super Dragon, Ray Danton. And since the last time he has been on the show, he is still not actually Native Hawaiian. But he does have a lovely tan. So now we have two business partners dead and Wallace losing his mind because he knows he's going to be next. Now, there's no reason for him because we have seen other cases similar to this where one business partner is taking out the other. And the people in those cases are much cooler and much calmer. Concerned, maybe. They might project a little air of concern. But if they're responsible, they're not nearly as panicked as Wallace is. And Wallace is basically on a ledge at this point, freaking out because he knows he's going to be next. And Danny plays that. Danny plays on his panic, offering to put him in protective custody. Now, protective custody would mean putting him in jail. And Wallace absolutely refuses. He says he's going to stay at the house with the girls. And Danny decides to play on Wallace's paranoia by asking the girls in front of him. Edie, where were you this morning? Me? I was just around. Donna? Well, let me see. I was... I know, around. And so Wallace ends up getting rid of them because he feels they're being vague. They could have something to do with it. And so he gets rid of them. Danny doubles the security at the house. And that's where Wallace is going to stay. And by the way, the house is Robin's Nest. So we were back at Robin's Nest again for this episode. 
So there is some question about whether or not Wallace is behind any of this. It's starting to look like it's not because the other partner's dead. He's not celebrating. And Kono also points out that there are now two dead fish in the aquarium. After Mingo's death, there was one dead fish in this aquarium. And now there's two. Two dead men, two dead fish. And Danny kind of dismisses this. Hey, Danny, look at this. Dead fish, dead man. Same house, same day. Interesting, huh? Okay, enough of the deep Hawaiian symbolism. And it turns out that Kona was actually onto something. He doesn't realize, I don't think anybody realizes exactly what he's onto, but he is onto something. And that something relates to the murder weapon. So the autopsy the doc does on Mingo reveals very little. All he knows is that he was suffocated. He choked to death. And it was a slower process than anticipated. It was death by inches is how he describes it. But there was, he found an alkaloid in his bloodstream. So this shows that the poison was not ingested and was not applied topically. It would have had to have been injected at some, somehow, but there's no puncture wounds that he can find. So he has no idea how this poison was administered. And he also doesn't know what this poison was other than it causes the victim a really slow, uncomfortable death by suffocation. So in addition to this autopsy that reveals nothing and this suspect list, they think they have two really good suspects, but that quickly goes away with Akamai's death. So the suspect pool is huge. They don't have a lot of go, lot to go on until Akamai dies. When Akamai dies, Kono again comes up with the actual big clue. And that is there's salt water on Akamai's pillowcase. And there definitely shouldn't be. They also reveal that at Mingo's autopsy, they found traces of salt water. So this leads them back to the aquarium. Because Kono pointed out, there's salt water in both of the victims. There's two dead fish in the aquarium. What lives in the ocean and can kill people and fish? And to find that out, we go to Sea Life Park. Probably the only time we've been to Sea Life Park so far that did not involve some sort of undercover operation. But we talk to an expert at the Sea Life Park and find out that there is a gastropod called the Cloth of Gold that fits this description. And basically what it is, is that this little gastropod, if you take the shell, if you try to pick up its little shell from the wrong end, it will kill you. If you take it from the butt end, so the fat end, it, it does not. But if you try to take it from the front end, it can, perceives you as a threat. And it has these little needles that are like, they describe it as arrows in a quiver filled with poison. And they are very, very tiny. What happens is that he, the little gastropod, the little, little cloth of gold snail, sticks you with one of those. And that is enough to kill you. The person who gets stuck, sometimes they feel it, but sometimes they don't. So it looks like just a shell and it doesn't look deadly. So the murder weapon has been in the house the whole time. It's been in the aquarium the whole time, but it's not there now. And Wallace doesn't have a whole lot of time left. Our guest cast is timeless, and we should take a closer look at them. Wallace was played by Jason Evers. This is his second of three episodes. He was also in All the King's Horses. Akamai was, as I said, Ray Danton. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in Last Eden. Ralph Mingo was played by Jay Robinson. He was Dr. Shrinker on Dr. Shrinker. 
Dr. Death Ray on the Bay City Rollers show, and Monty Dolan on Days of Our Lives. He also appeared in episodes of The Wild Wild West, Star Trek, Bewitched, The Virginian, O'Hara, U.S. Treasury, Search, Banachek, Mannix, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Harry O, Phyllis, AES, Hudson Street, Barney Miller, Voyagers, Chips, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and Murder, She Wrote. He appeared in the movies Ghost Ship from 1992, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Transylvania Twist, The Malibu Bikini Shop, The Sword and the Sorcerer, Born Again, Shampoo, Nightmare Honeymoon, This is a Hijack, My Man Godfrey, and The Virgin Queen. He appeared in the TV movies She Lives, Memories Never Die, and Dying to Remember, and he was in the miniseries Sinatra. Manoa was played by William Valentine. This is his first of seven episodes. Dr. Pell was played by John Hunt. This is his second of seven episodes. We also saw him in Over 50 Steel. Nakamura was played by Artie McAuliffe. This is his third of eight episodes. We also saw him in The Bomber and Mrs. Maroney and uh, and I Want Some Candy and a Gun That Shoots. Donna was played by Kathy Musket. This is her only credit. And Edie was played by Shannon Kincaid. This is her only credit. And in an uncredited role, the cook was played by our friend Yankee Chang. This is his ninth of 17 episodes. Our writer, Bennett Foster, he only wrote one episode of Hawaii Five-O, but he also has writing credits for an episode of Cheyenne, the movies Flames of the West, and The Desperados are in town. And he has writing credits for the TV movies Scout's Honor and Mistress of Paradise. And that is Cloth of Gold. I really do enjoy this episode because of the way it is set up that you focus on Wallace and Akamai, one of those two being the bad guys. And it turns out that they are bad guys, but they're not the bad guys responsible for this particular thing happening in a direct sense. This is basically a consequence of their actions. And when you get to that point, when you realize what's going on and why it's going on, there's only one way the episode is going to end, and that's kind of a drag. But you're kind of glad that you get to watch three people get their comeuppance. You feel kind of good about it. At least I do. And I'm a bad person. So yeah, this was a pretty clever episode. Give it a watch. It'll make an interesting autopsy. Not for Mingo. L.B. Barker's out. He's out? How? He escaped. He was in solitary. Last night, in the middle of the night, he was in the hole. He said he was sick. Fake me, of course, but it was good enough to fool the doctor. He was transferred to the infirmary. They thought he was passing out. There was only one guard in the infirmary with the doctor. He took them both by surprise. He had a gun. Fake, maybe, maybe not. He took the keys. He was well prepared. He had a rope. Before an alarm could be sounded, he was over the wall, scaled him, beat it. That's exactly what he's hoping you'll do. Stay put, don't run. I'm certainly not waiting for him to get here. Taking the first plane anywhere. You stay put. We can protect you. If you run, he'll kill you. 
Episode 21, Good Night Baby, Time to Die. Air date, February 15th, 1972. Directed by Alf Gjellin. I'm still not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. This is his second of seven episodes and written by Abram S. Guinness. This is his first of three episodes. Carol Rhodes wakes to an incessant knocking in the early morning hours. It's Steve, and he must speak with her urgently. As she gets her robe on, Steve takes a quick look around the suite where she's staying, closing the curtains and turning on the lights. He gravely informs her that L.B. Barker is out. He escaped. He was in solitary and faked being sick. In the infirmary, he took the doctor and the officer by surprise with a fake gun. Before an alarm could be sounded, he was over the wall and out. Carol grabs her suitcase and starts to pack. Steve tells her that he's hoping she'll run. If she runs, Elby will kill her. But if she stays, Fivo will protect her. The phone rings. Carol fearfully answers it as Steve listens on the other line. It's Barker. He says he's coming to get her, and she'll be dead by sunset. Steve tells him that he'll never get a chance. Barker hangs up. Steve asks if Carol still wants to try for the airport. Five-O and uniforms set up around Carol's hotel. Chin takes some equipment up in the service elevator. Meanwhile, Carol's floor is cleared of the other guests and a command center is set up. Duke is coordinating the uniforms. Carol comes out to see what's going on and Steve tells her to stay in her apartment. She says she feels safer with him. Don't we all? Steve shows Carol the map where the patrol cars and foot patrols are set up. The red pin is Barker, his last known whereabouts. Dano comes in and says the rest of the guests have been cleared. He hands Steve a briefcase and Steve escorts Carol back to her room, where she pours herself a drink. She is pretty rattled because she knows that Barker means his threats. Steve asks Carol why Barker wants her dead and then snaps at her to get away from the window. Carol doesn't like his tone and doesn't answer his question. Steve unpacks the briefcase, which includes a walkie-talkie and files on Barker. After working for nearly 10 years as head of 5-0, he'd finally taken a vacation and was away when Barker killed his partner and best friend, McCabe, for which he was sent to prison. There's also files on a jewelry robbery that happened not long before McCabe was killed. The third file is Carol's juvenile record. Carol tells Steve that her parents ditched her. She lived in foster homes and she worked the streets. She met McCabe and Barker when she was 17 and Barker fell in love with her. She refills her drink as Dano lets Steve know on the walkie that Barker has boosted a car three miles north of the perimeter. He's getting closer. Steve asks why Carol broke with Barker and McCabe. She says she got picked up for B&E with them but got probation because she was young. They did another job which went wrong and she ran. Alfred Townsend's car almost hit her and he had her sit in his car with him. She told him her story and Townsend took care of her. He didn't use her like everyone else. He was kind, and she loved him, but it wasn't romantic. He was the curator of the Becca Museum, and he taught her things, little by little. He left her everything. Barker didn't like it. He made threats against them both. The jewelry robbery featured a million dollars in gems, perfect entry, and perfect getaway. Three days later, Alfred Townsend was dead. A noise outside sends Steve running out, but it's only an oxygen tank for one guest that couldn't be moved. Then the report comes in that Barker has robbed a gun shop, took the gun shop owner's clothes and a 38 special and some bullets. A description goes out over the wire and Car 43 radios in that they're in pursuit. They radio in the progress of the chase. Barker abandons the car and goes on foot, heading south towards the perimeter. Steve asks Dano about marksmen and then has Dano set them up. Carol sees the map and realizes that Barker's only a mile and a half away. 
Back in her suite, Carol gets another drink and offers one to Steve, who declines. She's obviously a little tipsy. She pesters him while he tries to read Barker's files. He tells her that the more he knows about Barker, the safer she is. Barker has no violence in his record until he killed McCabe, who was his best friend. Carol says he's an animal. That's why he was in solitary. Barker says that McCabe owed him money. He, wanted, he went to collect. McCabe fired at him twice, and he shot him. But Steve is curious about the circumstances. Carol says that Steve is insinuating that she kept contact with them. Townsend was shot to death three days before the jewelry robbery. Carol can't believe that Townsend had anything to do with the robbery. Barker killed him like he said he would. But the thing is, he couldn't have. He was in custody. So McCabe must have done it, either on his own or put up to it by Barker. Carol gets upset about what Steve is insinuating, which is that Townsend arranged for the jewelry robbery with Barker and McCabe to make sure she'd be taken care of. She finally confesses that she did know about it, and she tried to talk Townsend out of it, but he went through with it. He knew the ins and outs of the museum. Barker could get in anywhere, and McCabe did the electronics because he was in the Navy. She said that after it was done, Townsend said that she was right. Barker and McCabe couldn't be trusted. He said if anything happened to him, it was one of them. Three days later, Townsend went to meet a man, and he was killed, and the gems were gone. Carol figures that McCabe must have killed Townsend, and Barker must have figured that too, and that's why he killed McCabe. Barker calls, and the trace is set up. Steve tells Carol to stall as long as she can. Barker tells Carol that she has six hours till sunset, and after that, she won't need a watch. Carol wants to talk to him, but he says there's no more talking. She tries to arrange a meeting on Steve's word, but Barker doesn't fall for it. He knows someone is coaching her. If Carol wants to play games, he'll play games. He tells her to go open the drapes. He's so close, he'll be able to see her. Steve tells Barker to give up, but there's no answer. Just a payphone outside the hotel. And then an unconscious police officer. Barker is in the building. And it's only a matter of time before he gets to Carol. And there's no way that I could talk about my favorite episode of season four without one of my favorite people, the most magnificent, Daniel R. Budnick. How are you, Dan? I'm doing okay. It's 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 good to be here, and um, I'm always excited to talk about uh, your most favorite episodes because I always think because it'll I'm sure it'll happen maybe by the end of the series, but there'll be one that I I fear that I just won't like at all, and you'll you'll be able to I'll just be on the on the other end here with just a just a just a big fat lie in my mouth, <laughs> and you'll know it, and you'll know it, and you'll be like Dan after the after the chat, you'll be like Dan, I heard that lie. I heard that big fat lie still in your mouth. Ugh, and and if you're not careful, you're gonna die with that big fat lie still I'm in your die mouth. With big fat lie still in my mouth. That should be a song. I'm gonna die with that big fat lie still in my mouth. Now see wah, that wah, wah, that wah, would wah, have oh. been a 1972 hit. That would have been a huge hit. Come on. Mm-hmm. The McGarrets. The McGarrets. The McGarrett singers. Oh yes. Opportunities missed. I mean, there you go. <laughs> So since we are talking about my favorite episode of the season, I have to ask, uh, what did you think of Goodnight Baby, Time to Die, which is a great episode title? Yes, Uh, I I really liked it. I love the I didn't look up anything about it before I started. I just hit play and went. So so I didn't know that it really is just like it's more or less a two person piece between a Carol and McGarrett, more or less in her living room or a living room. And um, with occasional, uh, you know, occasionally Dano comes in or occasionally we see what LB, the bad guy, 
is is up to sort of and um but really it's it's kind of between the two of them and it's um i love the way that it seems at first you, you don't quite know where it's going and it seems at first like it's going to be kind of maybe like garrett's making a friend but then it goes a little screwy a bit and i didn't quite know where it was going and then when it got to the end it was actually one of those great episodes of tv where it got to the end and i immediately watched it again because when you get to the end and you know what's going on and then you watch it a second time you can see a lot of little things that that you thought were one thing but are actually kind of something else and that kind of thing so i think it's a very clever very smart episode the sort of thing that um I don't know the sort of thing that we maybe people don't think happened in television back then. Like this is a smart, clever, well-acted, tense, exciting episode of television. And, um, and, and I, I don't know for certain cause I haven't seen all the Hawaii five O's up to this point, but I would, I would guess that there aren't a lot of episodes like this where it's just two people sitting in a room most of the time. And so I, um, I, I say, yeah, this, this was, this was quite a lot of fun and rather dark at times too. Yes. I, that is you pointed out what I really like about this episode is that when you watch it the first time it's basically it's one thing and then when you know what the thing is and you watch it again the second time it's a completely different episode when you're watching mm-hmm. it the second time because mm-hmm. now you know yes and unfortunately we can't say what that is we'll say it later I guess in, yes. in the spoiler but I, I can't so so we can only talk about that I guess that first time through yeah right now yeah, okay. this is definitely one of those episodes that if you have not watched it yet, you need to watch yes. it before listen to us talk about it because we don't want to ruin anything for you. It and is just that good. The the weird thing about it, I will say this, if you're going to watch it the first time, is that I was surprised the second time through that a lot of the the things that I there, – there were some things that just kind of weren't really subtle at all that are happening and, and and again, I can't quite say what it is. I, I mean, but they're they're like when McGarrett is talking with Carol. And yes, I watched this three times, and I thought Carol's name was Susan <laughs> up until about two minutes before we started recording. So if I call her Susan, I apologize. I don't know where I got Susan from. I've got Susan written in big letters right here because I like to have the main character's name down, and it's crossed out. I have Carol written above it. Um, but Susan Carol is. Um, I don't even remember the point I was making. I got lost talking about Susan. Oh, oh no, it's um, it's it's that it it is it is neat because it, it's a lot of chat between Carol and McGarrett. McGarrett's trying to get information about LB and LB and their partner McCabe and this other guy Alfred Townsend who had taken Carol in, um, and was not quite her guy. Kind of more of a uh, I don't know more of a sort of more patriarchy but maybe he got to touch her behind occasionally i don't know it's a little tough to say and um and it's 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 it really is nicely done because like i said the the first time through things that seem that that seem just kind of like mcgarrett just being mcgarrity mcgarrity um the (laughs) second time through when you know what's happening things are it's it's actually a little more sort of forceful he's actually being there's actually things are a little everyone's playing the stake i i i don't quote i i do, maybe i'll say this later after the spoiler okay all right, all right. i will try to remind you to say it after the spoiler yes. yeah because it, it is it's kind of hard to talk about when you go in knowing how it ends mm-hmm. and not give it away like prior to that mm-hmm. and but what's great is for this first watch if we're going to talk about it like it's a first mm-hmm. watch you start with McGarrett waking Carol up very early in the morning. 
Mm-hmm. And she's disoriented and you're disoriented because you don't know what's going on and she doesn't know what's going on. And when he says that L.B. Barker broke out of prison, obviously that means something, uh, but yes. it doesn't really mean anything to you yet. Yes. Yes. And you kind of spend the first watch uh, basically trying to keep up and get your footing and trying to figure yes. out what's going on. Because the case that he's trying to piece together is kind of messy. Yes. Because... Yes. We're talking about, so we we start with L.B. Barker, and L.B. Barker's in jail because he killed his best friend slash partner, McCabe. He says in self-defense, but it was, they, but it was said that they argued over money. He owed him money Mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. And so he gets out because I guess he blames Carol for what, everything that happened. But then you have this jewel robbery from a museum that's tied in with uh, Townsend, who was the curator of the museum. And so you Mm -hmm. start getting all these pieces come in. And it's a little bit messy trying to put everything together and you're a little disoriented. And I think that helps actually when you get Mm -hmm. to the end and everything comes together because Mm -hmm. then it's like they keep you kind of disoriented and distracted enough so you don't see things that might be that are more obvious in the second watch. Yes, because when you're watching it the first time, your 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 thought is so McGarrett's there and he's being charming and handsome and 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 Carol's there and she's in lovely I don't know if it's lovely she's kind of a big bird colored um, <laughs> yellow uh, dress kind of thing and it's a mini skirt so I'm all for it I'm and she's lovely and she's got she she kind of tells her backstory and it's not very pleasant she's had a rough rough life and it sounds like she fell in with with bad people but then she fell in with someone good who apparently got killed by the bad people trying to come back into life, that kind of thing. And it's like, the, the thing about the case is that you're, you're as McGarrett's kind of relating stuff about the case, you're, you're also kind of like thinking, okay, where is LB? Where is this crazy guy? And you're not, or I wasn't sort of fully paying attention to, I mean, I guess I was paying attention, but I, I didn't realize, and this might be a slight spoiler, how important all of his constant, talk about the case was i just thought he was doing some homework you know just Mm -hmm. just kind of reading through stuff kind of learning what's going on making sure he knew everything that was going on and and then occasionally maybe making a little conversation but in the end everything kind of is moving towards sort of one thing and when you know what that thing is then it all pretty much kind of falls into place not not just what he's doing but kind of what she's doing too all this happened while i was away And uh, these juvenile files, I never have occasion to read them. Not until now. Well, I see you do your homework. Always. Tell me about you. Tell you about me? It's what they call an abandoned child. I didn't have to run away from my parents. They ran away from me. And I lived in foster homes, things like that. Pineapples and men away on conventions. I was pretty much wiped out by the time I was 17. That's when I met L.B. and Wayne McCabe. They had a beach shack. L.B. fell in love with me, I guess. And um, like one of the things that happens in this is that every time you get information about, okay, LB, he pretended to be sick and he broke out of prison. Oh, he stole a car. Oh, he's broken into the hotel. Every time that happens, you cut to LB, you know, doing that. 
But the way they do it, and I don't know if it's a spoiler. I don't think it is. But if I say it out loud, it might be a spoiler. Uh, the way they do it is in such a way where you you kind of – it's not a normal – they don't do it normally. Um, they do – they add something extra to it that makes you – the first time you see it, you think, huh, why are they doing that? And then they do it again and again to the point where you're just like, oh, this is just what they're doing. But then in the end, it's like, oh, okay, okay, they were up to something. They're, boy, I'm being vague on this. <laughs> Let me talk about um, – it's great to see how they get everyone – all the cops are there and everyone. They, they clear out the – the floor, apart from one guy with an oxygen tank. Yeah. Here's a spoiler. The oxygen tank doesn't have anything to do with it. No, no. Except thought, it's, a, it's a momentary distraction. Yes. Just yes. – it, basically, it's a jump scare at one point yeah, when yeah. they knock it over. But yes, I will yeah. I will point out with that evacuation, there were so many beautiful moves in that evacuation because <laughs> we actually see people being moved off the floor. Yes. And it's yeah. just like there's just one beautiful moo after another. It was fantastic, yeah. And I also had yeah. this note because you brought up her her dress, which is a bright yellow shift mini dress, and I I wrote down, oh, my homicidal ex is coming. Better wear my bright yellow shift mini dress and get lit because she drinks throughout the whole episode. She does. Too. She does. She gets really sauced mm-hmm. uh, about halfway through, and she keeps offering McGarrett uh, drinks. And then um, at at one point, she's kind of by his knee, looking up at him as he's as, she, as they're both talking. And uh, I, I do like that that they have the one point where she she says something like, "Well, look at look at me, look look at me, McGarrett, look at me." You know, I know I'm not I'm I'm not I'm not tough to look at. And he looks up and says, "Oh no, you're not tough to look at at all." But I'm more, more worried about the homicidal maniac who's coming here to kill you. He doesn't quite say that, but but that's kind of the the thing. So so there's kind of a it, it's interesting because she's lovely and he's handsome, you know, and and you 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 don't know what you're going to expect. It's McGarrett. You know, you're not you, you don't you don't know what to expect, but the way they kind of play it where she's just talking so much about her life and she's drinking and she has some wonderful the the actress is very, very good, mm-hmm. I think. And she's got some great especially near the end, she's got some great line deliveries. And occasionally she sort of puts words in a slightly weird order when she's saying things. And um, especially because I had the subtitles on when I was watching it, I forget why. Um, but I had the su- and there, there are occasional lines in here where she'll say something and the, the the words are slightly out of order. She just has an interesting way of saying something. So she's very, she's kind of like, um, it's almost funny. I will say at the very end of it, and this is not a spoiler, but at the very end of it, I I, I thought during the final scenes and even during some of the scenes in the room, I thought, you know what? I know that. Uh, the first thing David Lynch directed was Eraserhead. But if he, like Robert Altman, had begun directing in television, I think this would have been a David Lynch-directed episode. It's not It's not, It's not. not like a super weird – it kind of is, actually. It, it's almost – there are points in it when the cop's talking to the lady and the lady's telling her story and things are really weird and the stories – and, and the, the crime is told sort of slightly out of order. And you hear like they'll say McCabe, but then she'll say, well, I was there with Mike or, or whatever McCabe's name Wayne. was. Wait, Mike? Oh, Wayne. Yeah, I was there with Wayne. And for a second I was like, who's Wayne? <laughs> oh, is that McCabe? Okay, I'm, it's just like all these things are flooded. Now, I'm not saying like – if you're a David Lynch fan, tune into this and it's going to go Twin Peaks on you or something. But there there are weird moments in the way it's directed and the way it's put together that are um, just very, very odd and almost Lynchian. 
kind of. I've been watching a lot of David Lynch lately, and especially when I got, especially her performance is something I think you would see like in a David Lynch, like a Mulholland Drive or something like that. And um, uh, and it's 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 not as weird as that, like I said, but it has a lot of wonderful bits and bobs, and it it's it really does seem like it might just it it's going to be kind of a interesting kind of like getting to know one another under great stress but something else is going on that just makes it all feel it, it feels uncomfortable it feels comfortable slightly then it starts to feel uncomfortable and then it just feels weird yeah. and uh, it's it's really like i said i i don't are there other episodes like this a lot of other episodes like this in the series or is this like not, sort of a twofer uh, kind of? not off the top of my head can i think of one that's quite like this this was very especially from the first four seasons this was quite the departure with the ending because it's mm -hmm. because so much of it is very much like the previous episodes in that yes here comes five oh here comes mcgarrett they're going to take care of mm -hmm. business we've seen them protecting other people before go because it's interesting too because they they have the whole building surrounded with cops so they have uniform officers they have five oh in there Mm -hmm. Just for this one lady to protect this yeah. one woman. And yeah, we've I, seen them yeah. do stuff like that before, but it's like, who is this woman and why Why is it so important to protect her? And for whatever reason, that doesn't really register because that's just what Fio does. And that's that's something, too, that when you watch the second time, you sit there and you go, they're doing a lot for this this to protect this one. You know, rather than say, oh, take her somewhere safe. If mm -hmm. very far away, they they're 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 kind of leaving her in place and just throwing a cordon around her that you know LB is going to get through. Yeah, you you know it from the beginning that it's just a matter of time. I mean, it's not going to be something like we're at the end of the episode. It's like they caught him ten miles away. He's back in prison. <laughs> you know that's not going to happen. You know it's going to be a gradual. He's within five miles. He's within a mile. Someone saw him a block away. We think he's in the building. You know that's exactly how it's going to go no matter what they do. And the thing is, it, it's nice that because you do get occasional shots of what's happening. But a lot of it is just like over the radio or just McGarrett telling her. Yeah. What's happening. And, and marking it. And it's not it. because they're cheap. Yeah, it's not, yeah. It's not because they're cheap. It, it's yeah. It's – it really is very cleverly done that that what seems like you said what seems like a normal episode there's actually something else going on mm -hmm. <laughs> and 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 it even and, and, and when you watch the second time you sort of it's it's funny because like the first time i watched it i watched carol who's carol whose middle name i believe is susan um you watch <laughs> carol and you, you know you're watching her, and she she's she's worried, and she gets a little flustered at times because McGarrett is asking her all these questions about this crime and all about her life, and she gets a little bothered. But then she is very stressed out, and she does say at one point, making the good point when she kind of like she accidentally peeks out the window, she says, "Hey, the criminal's out there, not in here. Get away from that window." I told you that before. You said tone of voice with me. We don't know where he is. We don't know if he has a rifle or not. I like your tone. The criminal's out there. He's not in here. You know, I think that I pregnant paused too long right there after saying that line. I should have spoken faster. Um, but she says that, and you're, and you're right. You're, you know, and that's the thing. You know, is it's like, is it's like, but but to me, you know, that's like that's McGarrett. That's just mm -hmm. the way he is. You know, and, and so and, and so it's kind of fun to 
when you watch it the second time to watch her the second time, knowing what you know from mm-hmm. the first time. Watch the way she re- I mean, because there are some great shots of her just like like two shots of them really close. And she's just staring up at him. And the first time you watch it, it seems very much like, um, you know, she 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 comes out of her apartment. She says, I, I didn't feel safe, you know, by myself. I feel safer with you. And you feel like, okay, he's this handsome guy. He's in charge of 5-0. She feels safest with him. Understood. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. For for an episode of a of a TV show that's churning out, you know, over 20 hours a year, um, it's almost startlingly clever when you return to it the second time to see how nicely they've they've handled it. I don't know if that was all on purpose or whether that was just that was just the actors doing it or what it was, but it's really it's sharply done, and and, and it helps that they're both, uh, you know, they're, they're that she's she's got like this, like like the moment where she's like she's looking up at, at McGarrett, and she's kind of like got her got her mouth close to his hand, like she's almost going to kiss his hand, and she like has her hair, and she's like making her hair like a mustache or something. Mm-hmm. She just does these little weird little little <laughs> weird little things that feel very real, and that don't don't feel like the kind of things you would see someone do in a detective or cop show at this. I mean, not that, that actors didn't do stuff that would be real, but just these little weird moments like the, I'm f- flirting with this guy, handsome man from five O and I'm making a little mustache with my long, beautiful blonde hair. What do you think of that? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a little weird. It's just, it's just kind of charming. And, and, and you know, it's just, yeah, it's it's. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of what else I could talk. I want to talk about something authoritatively that doesn't require me to stop halfway through. <laughs> well, I want to point out because you keep point, pointing out the weird things that happen. So we do get the flashes of when they're hearing things on the radio, or when Steve mm-hmm. is telling her of what LB is doing, and we get to see him do these things. And so we get to see him escape from jail. We see him rob the gun shop and mm-hmm. steal. Well, we don't see the actual theft of the clothing, but we're told that he steals the guy, the clerk's clothes and um, he steals a car and they chase the car. So we're actually we see some of that chase, Mm -hmm. but most of it is we're just being told, oh, they're going on King Street, this and that. And then he says he ditches the car and goes on. He's on foot and we see the officers run past him and he's like in a noodle shop and he turns around. He's eating noodles. (laughs) <laughs> and it's just so like I'm so I I laugh every time I watch it just because it's just so absurd, but it's also something that would probably happen too. Mm-hmm. You know that that's how you would that's how you fake out the cops. You <laughs> pretend you were eating noodles, yes. and but he's not pretending. He's like going all for it. He, yeah, he's having he's enjoying. Himself, and so it's yeah. just this bizarre little moment that's stuck in there that kind of mm, sticks I, out. So yeah, I get what you're saying with all the the weird moments, the the gestures, the. The way she, when she gets, as she gets drunker, yeah, she can't keep her yes. words in order, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. That, yeah, it, 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 it lends a quality of kind of like absurdity, but also a little more real because reality is so absurd. Yeah. And I think, and, does she use the word cockamamie at one point? Am I, am I full of it? Yes. She uses the she word does. cockamamie, okay. which I don't believe is used enough in no, life. Not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah. But yeah. What kind I, of cockamamie theory is that? Yes. Yeah, she gets, she gets, it's great to watching her swing as she, especially as she gets drunker, swing mm-hmm. between being belligerent yes, and being sweet and nice and seductive yes. and. Be- yes, 
you know, here, protect me. What kind of yeah. lousy cop are you? If you're the best we've got, then we're oh, in trouble. We're in you trouble. know, yeah. just swinging back and forth with those mood swings. Yeah. yeah and and because and, and, McGarrett is try, he's trying to I, he's trying to sort of get into LB's mind, as it were. And so he's asking her all he know, all she knows, and he's coming at it in a slightly strange way. Like I said, it's not fully like it's slightly odd, but you know he's just trying to find out what she. And it's driving her crazy because she's. I think she's just thinking, just catch him. You don't have to know the psychology of it. Just catch him. But he's McGarrett. He's trying to learn, and he's he's she's trying to figure out. You know, every little bit. He says, you know, uh, you're doing your homework always. Mm-hmm. He says. So you know, he's just he's just there. He, he's doing that, and and it, like you said, it is funny to watch because she's getting kind of more and more sauce as it goes, which one can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but but and and she's going through the mood swing. She's going between you know protect me and what the hell are you going on and on and on about with Alfred and and McCabe and LB and da 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 and do 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 and all this stuff. Just protect me. You got all these cops. Protect me. I told you, the more I know, the better chance we have. Yeah, and the thing is, is that we don't necessarily consider it to be too intrusive or anything that he's doing this because that's what McGarrett does. He's a good cop. He, he, he wants to get into LB's mind because if he can get ahead of him, it will be easier for them to catch him. And that's what, and, and like, so when this is all going on, we're like, shut up lady, just answer the questions. He's trying to help you. I mean, possibly McGarrett should have not let her drink so much. um, Cause she does. And she keeps trying to offer him drinks yeah, and uh, you know, yeah, that's and not at a good one idea. point she says, "I've n- there's something wrong about a guy named Garrett turning down yeah. a drink," and I'm just like, yeah. "Oh, that sounds a little anti-Irish <laughs> to me." But okay, yeah, yeah it's uh, it's 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 funny because it really is like a, an interesting sort of um, yeah, like I said, it, it really does seem like oh, maybe they're going to become great friends or we're going to learn about one another or something. And, but then it, it, it kind of goes off in different directions as he's trying to figure out what's going on. And you learn more and more about this strange crime and yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot that happens. Yeah. And, but the thing is, is that when you watch it the first time around, there is a lot of really great tension throughout the episode because we know LB, LB Barker is getting closer. We can see it on the map. His little red pin Mm. keeps moving closer. And there's one great scene where he calls her and he tells her that when it's sundown, she won't need her watch anymore. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to keep him on the line to trace the call. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, telling him whatever he, she can to keep him on the line and says that she'll meet him somewhere because she'd like very much to live. And I'm like, you know, think it over. But anyway, he doesn't hang up. He just mm. leaves the phone a, dangling at the yes. phone booth. Mm. And that's such a great image as, yeah. you know, McGarrett's yelling at him, you know, mm. yelling his name. And that's that phone, the phone, the receiver's just swinging at the phone booth. It's just such I, a great tense image. And they do. And they cut between that and the guy, the guy who's who's at the phone company going through trying to find if you've ever yeah. seen um, uh, Black Christmas. Uh, the original yes. Black Christmas has a sequence in there where they show the guy going through the phone, like trying to follow down all the I don't even know what they are, like mm. all these all these boxes that are I guess each one is like a phone line or something. Try to find yeah. the one. Although although this guy in Hawaii Five always isn't moving as quickly no. as the guy did in Black. He looks more like he's a trainee. Well, this this is actually footage from an, an earlier episode, a previous <laughs> episode. <laughs> 
And this is when I discussed this this particular scene in that episode. I'm like, okay. if you've ever heard them say they're tracing a phone call, this is literally what they did. He yes. was literally tracing a wire to find mm-hmm. out where it was at and who it belonged to. Yeah, and that, and that sequence of Black Christmas is uh, is where it's I. I I, well, actually, in the end, in the end, they actually, obviously, they find out where the phone call is coming through because that's the big reveal in the movie. Spoiler, yeah. um, but but that's it's it's yeah, and it's it's fun to see in this because I was like, oh, another we're we're following the phone. The, I didn't know it was from another episode though. Yeah, um, they well, no actually... wonder they don't. They're unable to track him because yeah. it's from another episode. They're tracking someone else. <laughs> Yes, they are. They've actually used this scene, I think, in at least one other episode. So the original episode, there's a brief use of it in a different episode in this episode that I remember off the top of my head. So Winston Shar, who played that phone tech in that initial Mm -hmm. episode, he got a lot of mileage out of it. Because he ended up oh, appearing funny. in several episodes without actually having to be there. <laughs> he's, he's our phone guy. He just because uh, I and I just say that there's a moment where he like kneels down to look at something, and then it stops, and it looks like he's explaining something. But I thought, don't explain. Look, go. No, now's not the time to explain. <laughs> what are they doing? They keep him on the line. This is why you know it wasn't that they didn't have a bank of computers like running or something. They had a guy running yeah. up and down. Running up and down, so. <laughs> oh, that's cute. That's real cute. I, have I talked about anything authoritatively that uh, her dress? Um, uh, her where are they? Susan. They're not in her. They're not in her apartment, right? They actually. They're, are they? they? Well, I'm confused. They call it her apartment. Uh-huh. When that's where Stephen and Carol are, but then they say they're clearing the floor of guests. Yeah, so it's a it's hotel. Like, but then, yeah, yeah so but I'm thinking that in, in Hawaii that sometimes people would live in hotels there. Sure, yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking maybe that's what it was. Could have been, yeah. Um, but yeah, but they're, they're set up at a room at the end of the hall, and I don't know what that room okay. is. And it must mm-hmm. be a hotel because this is not necessarily a spoiler, but later we do see the, the laundry room. And there yeah, are laundry shoots so in the building. And you don't have that in apartment buildings. You have that in yeah. hotels. Mm-hmm. You have so there's some exciting laundry shoot action yeah. later on. Spoiler, <laughs> but yeah, I um, I yeah, I I I I found the episode to be pretty fascinating because, like, like I said, the first time I was watching it, you don't you, you you think you know what's happening, but you you don't know what's happening, not at all. Oh. And if 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 you, I mean, and here's the thing, everybody, if if you haven't watched the episode yet, and really stop right now, we'll wait. Mm-hmm. Did you watch it? Are you back? How was it? Did you enjoy it? We're not going to spoil anything yet. But but even even if even if you're not going to listen to the the spoiler part of it, now I did the pause and I forgot what I was going to say. Man, I had something authoritative that I was going to say about the episode, and I paused to let everyone watch it. Well, it was a fifty minute episode. I can't be. Yeah. Can't. Yeah, you can't be held responsible. Was for I going to talk about laundry? No, I don't think you were no. going to talk about laundry. Okay, all right. Well, when I when I remember what it was, I'll get back to you. I have a cop's mind, and that cop's mind keeps telling me something like this. Do you have anything else pre-spoiler <clears throat> that you want to talk about? Because this is this is a difficult episode to talk about without spoiling it. So yes, I think we should really hit spoilers is. a little bit sooner than we normally would, mm-hmm. just so we can um, pull it all together. No, that's a yeah. Cause, cause I mean, like I, like, like I said earlier, like whenever they cut to LB out, out and about, 
they do it in a slightly interest. They do it in an interesting way that the moment I mention it, it, it's not a spoiler when you're watching it the first time. You just kind of, like I said, you just kind of think, oh, that's interesting that they're doing that. But it is a spoiler in the uh, the second time. The, it's already spoiled. But you know what I mean. Shut up. Don't, don't be a jerk. Don't be, don't be a jerk. Okay. Last thing I will mention before we go into spoiler territory, and that is in her apartment, she has some really great throw pillows. One of them looks like it was they found a shag zebra and skinned it. It's gorgeous. <laughs> oh, I see it right there. It's right yes. there. <laughs> yes. And then I have to comment on the phones because one phone is this very ornate like princess phone. And then mm. the other one is that it was the 70s, the 60s, 70s, like, mo- yeah, what, that mod future thing. future phone almost. Where, yes. With the, the dial on the bottom. And it and uh-huh. that's the one that McGarrett is talking. Not that he would look any better or it would be any more or any less funny if he was on the princess <laughs> phone. But he's talking on this and trying to be very aggressive and authoritative with Barker, who has a great phone threat voice. <laughs> Yes. And and he but he's on this ridiculous looking phone. It was just magnificent. Yeah, it's, it's funny. <laughs> and I, I do. There there is there is one moment I like when she um actually there are quite a few. But when um when when Carol uh she she first leaves the apartment or the space and then they return to it and she starts her drinking and I like she like she she walks in and she as they're talking to each other she sort of casually looks at a glass picks it up looks inside it and kind of goes sets it down picks up another glass looks inside it nods and kind of does a into it and then pours some booze into it and i kind of like the um the choosing of the glass it's kind of yes. a nice little, little touch little extra and yeah. then she uses that glass a lot yeah and she she's does. Constantly, she's got so, one so- hanging in her other hand for mcgarrett does this mean that she the other glass that she offered mcgarrett at one point was the yucky glass it may have been. I'd like to say I think there was more than the two glasses there, but I can't be 100% sure. It I was a well-stocked so. bar. I hope so because McGarrett deserves a better than a yucky glass yes. of booze. Yeah, he really, he really, really does. And it's funny because I've got another scene on here right now that I'd like to talk about, but I just realized it's past spoiler point, so I can't talk about it. Let us venture past spoiler point. Okay. So here is your official spoiler warning. We're now going to be discussing the last 15, 20 minutes of the episode. So you are warned past this point, there will be spoilers. Hi, hi, everybody. I've, I've suddenly, I suddenly got shy. <laughs> I, suddenly, I suddenly don't want to tell everyone. I don't want to talk about the spoilers because it's so good. I will talk about the spoilers because it okay. is so good. So mm-hmm. what happens is obviously LB Barker gets into the hotel. This is where the laundry part comes in. He comes up the laundry chute yes. is what we're shown. And he is jumping from balcony to balcony and manages to repel yes. down onto this balcony. Now inside Carol's apartment, she's getting a bit belligerent with McGarrett, who's listening to a new tape from a new witness that came it was recorded like 36 hours before this witness was a junkie who had been staying at McCabe's place at the time he was shot and said that someone else was in the house and took Wayne's gun, McCabe's gun. Mm -hmm. Cause LB Barker kept saying that he was self-defense, but they couldn't find a gun or casings, no bullet holes in the wall to indicate that. And so you have this confession playing, they hear a noise on the balcony. McGarrett throws open the door, looks out there, and here comes Barker, and he knocks him cold. They struggle. He knocks him cold, and we're like, oh, no, he's going to get Carol. And then Carol starts spilling her guts and admitting to 
everything because it turns out Carol's a mastermind. Yes. She set L.B. Barker up to kill Wayne McCabe by putting blanks in his gun and then stealing his gun after he Mm -hmm. was shot. And she, the whole time they're trying to figure out, they know Barker couldn't have killed Townsend. Because she finally Mm -hmm. admits to Steve that Townsend was the one that orchestrated the robbery and used McCabe and Barker. And they, she tries to paint it like they turned on him and killed him. Yes. But Barker couldn't have because he was in custody at the time. So it had to have been McCabe. And that's why Barker killed McCabe was because he wanted his cut of the gyms and blah, blah, blah. You see, folks, there's there's a lot that goes on. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. And she admits to, to Barker because she admits to setting him up and then says that she's the one who killed Townsend and she did it for them mm. so they could live large on the the gems, which she has already cashed into like half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. She's saying that, you know, we can go away now, baby. And I'm like, you sent him up the river. Yes. Yeah. And right after they, right after they listened to the, the junkies um, testimony, McGarrett um, says, is, you know, isn't is it weird that, that he says that someone in there took the gun? So that meant that, you know, Townsend was killed and then um, McCabe gets killed by LB and then LB goes away and everyone involved in the crime except one person is either dead or in prison for life. Huh. Who might this be? <laughs> this person. And you realize and as, as you're as you're originally watching it. As I was originally watching, I don't think I was fully comprehending what was happening. It isn't until really LB shows up and it all comes out because she's not admitting anything. And and you're I think you're still kind of even though she's getting belligerent here and there, um, I you're I'm still slightly on her side. Maybe it's the little skirt. I don't know. And I apologize (laughs) if it is. That's that's my failing. That's me. I will work on that. And when LB shows up and she starts talking, it's it's almost like she, like you said, she spills her. She admits so many things that it's almost you have to pause for a moment. Did she just say that she killed Townsend? Oh my god! Oh my gosh! Oh wow! You know it. I'm dumb to lie to you. I killed Alfred, but I did it for us. After we pulled the job, I told him we could live like kings. And the stupid guts in his car to go to the cops to turn us in for his reputation. After we pull the most beautiful job in the world, I'm going to let him squeal and loss up everything. You bet I killed him. I killed him for us. Once you have this knowledge and you go back and you watch Carol throughout the episode, you realize that she's being charming and seductive and being innocent and, and playing up that downtrodden, um, you know, I was an abandoned child. My parents ran away from me kind mm-hmm. of thing and how wonderful Townsend was and took her in and showed her real love and gave her a real home for the first time and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you, when Steve is asking her questions, you realize how much she's tailoring things to go with what he, yes. she thinks he knows so mm-hmm. saying she's trying because, I mean, you can dismiss her not admitting that Townsend was involved in the robbery because she's trying to protect him. Mm-hmm. But then when you come back to it, she's only revealing what she thinks Steve knows. Yes. When she goes through. Mm-hmm. And that's why everything keeps changing and, and why she keeps leading on to, oh, well, Barker must have done it. Well, Barker couldn't have done it. Well, then it had to have been McCabe. And, oh, that must be yeah. why Barker killed McCabe. You know, she keeps tailoring her story to that information that's revealed. 
And there's one there's one point in there where he like says to her like something about like the firing the two shots and then LB fired or something like that. I forget exactly what it is. And she says like, oh, I didn't say that. And McGregor yeah. says, no, no, you just said it a few mm-hmm. minutes ago. I heard you say it. I just said, no, I didn't say that. You must have said that. Maybe I heard that somewhere. Yeah. And you could see her like running around trying to be like, okay, what did, what did I just do? What did, yeah. what just happened? I, maybe like, I shouldn't like, have been drinking and I could remember. Like, possibly, yeah. It's like I thought McGarrett was a step behind me. Now he's suddenly a step ahead. What's happening? I, I didn't never say that. Albie's guilty for life. Didn't you say that? Maybe I read that in the testimony. And the and the, the big thing they do that I love that just looks weird the first time you watch it, but then you sort of realize what it is, is um, all this stuff with LB um, breaking out of the prison, you know, using his fa- you know fake gun and stealing the car and letting the phone hang there and Jackie Chan and on the side of this hotel, rappelling down, leaping on top. It's all crap. It's all what what she, uh, you know, climbing up the laundry chute, like five or six floors. It's all what she's thinking he's doing. Mm-hmm. It's not what he's actually doing because he's in the hotel the entire time. Yeah, he's in a and room with fir- a couple of officers smoking a cigarette. Smoking a cigarette. And, and so and so it's interesting because the first time they say, like, he began, McGarrett says, oh, he pretended to be sick and he fooled the doctor and then they were working on him and he had a gun, but maybe it wasn't real. And they're showing this happening in the prison, but right before they show it, they do a thing where they, like, just kind of, I forget if they zoom in or track in on her eye as it's, like, wide open, and you're like, she's terrified, and then it shows this footage, and then they kind of do that more or less every time. Not as uh, uh, obviously, but they kind of do that every time, and you're like, isn't that that weird that they keep doing that? I mean, or my thought was that when she talks about LB, she talks about him so authoritatively, like, um, hey, there, I have used that word ten times. (laughs) Um, You know, she says, like, LB, I forget how she describes it, she's like, LB, he can get it anywhere. Yeah. You know, and the way she describes LB. And, and so to me, when they kind of went in on her eye, the first time they did it, I thought, oh, my gosh, she's she's really worried. Oh, my God. And we're seeing what happened. But then after a time, you're like, well, maybe we're not fully seeing what happened. Maybe some of it is is um, she she knows this guy so well that she knows exactly what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. But then you realize in the end that she is worried that he's going to show up. And that is actually like. You know, when, you know, she, she's uh, she's doing worst case scenario thinking every time they mention something and it's just building up in her mind, but none of it's actually happening. Yeah. So so in the episode, he, he scales down the front. And that's the thing is he's scaling down the front of a huge hotel on the coast of a, like whatever island we're on in Hawaii. Oahu. Someone hasn't seen him. Yeah. Yeah. Someone hasn't seen him. It's a guy on the side. It's on this huge. Yeah, he's going hotel. past. He's going past floors that haven't been cleared. You think someone might notice? Yes, might yes. happen to be using their balcony at that moment. Yeah, and and you can see at one point there are like two people peering over a balcony looking at him. Mm-hmm. And 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 so he's creeping along. He's doing and and the way it's presented is he's like he's like he's on the floor above on the balcony crouched there and when McGarrett steps out he leaps down on McGarrett but actually he's just right on the balcony right there and just kind of drops down on him mm-hmm. there's no and and I, I, I and, and they do it quite quite nicely because like like I said I think part of your mind really thinks this is in her mind 
this might not be what's actually happening. But because they're showing it, and because it makes sense until the end, I don't think fully your mind sort of goes, oh, this is in her head, something else is happening. Because that's exactly what's going on. Yeah, no, it's like they keep focusing on her, like, to to drive home that she's the one that he's coming to get. It's kind of how yes. it plays into it, because she's the target. And that's when I first watched it, that's kind of how I interpreted it was, of course, they're going to focus on her when they're talking about him because she's the one he's coming to kill. Yes. And she is genuinely terrified. Now, as much as she plays or tries to play McGarrett throughout the whole all of this, she's mm -hmm. legit terrified that Barker's going to kill her because she's afraid she's not going to be able to talk her way out of it. And it looks yes. like she yeah. does. And mm -hmm. she's going to kill McGarrett. She says that they need to get, get rid of him, obviously. So she says it's time to get away because they won't know who they're looking for. But then, mm. and she's willing, she goes, we'll, she'll shoot him with his own gun. And then she's like, no, that'll make too much noise and grabs an ice pick. Like, <laughs> I got this, bro. And he stops her. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. boy. It's great. Oh, Carol. Carol. And you want to knock him off for your own reasons. That's it, isn't it? For us, I want to knock him off. Here, I'll knock him off myself with his own gun. Oh, no. Can't have no noise. I know where you want to kill him. Um, he stops her and says, I think you're doing it because he knows that he knows what mm -hmm. you did. That's when we get the even bigger reveal of, oh, you're a mastermind, but Steve's a bigger mastermind in the whole yes. thing was played. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and that's, that's when I wonder, like when you see those random shots, like the cops in the hall and stuff. I, and even there, there's a point, I think when, um, uh, he's he's at the map at the beginning and you see her in the hallway. A cop points. She talks to a, you see her in the distance and she goes up to a cop. The cop points towards McGarrett. And she comes into the, you know, the room where McGarrett is, is talking to another cop. And he's saying something like, uh, I wanted 12 cop cars and 50 police officers. Well, car 10 and 11 are on their way. Excellent. And, and then you suddenly realize that when you watch it a second time is, is he saying that because he can see her approaching? Mm -hmm. And they don't – the only people they have are the people that she can see. Yeah. They don't have 10, 11, 12 cop cars there. It's all it's all baloney. They they just have a, a just a brace of guys moving quickly. And, you know, if she looked closely, she could probably see like, you know, like if they start at one end of a hallway and go to the other, she there's probably like one cop who ducks into a room, goes and runs to the other end of the hallway. He's like, <laughs> weren't you at the other end of the hallway? No, no. We're, we're, one, we're one cop short. Well, they were probably just like, they just got a bunch of guys that were off duty and they were like, hey, yes. you want to make some overtime? Yeah, and they we, just we, got in their uniforms and did some theater, basically. Though I will point out, though, that the one cop that um, Steve was talking to about the, the 50 officers and whatnot, that's Duke. And he's going oh, to okay. become much beloved for the rest of the series, at least oh, to me. Oh, OK. Oh, wonderful. OK. Yes. So so I, I do like the, I do like this thought that. um. The whole, so much of the time is spent with just the two of them in the room, locked in the room, safe in the room. And there's a constant feel of um, all this activity is going on all around them. But I love the thought that more or less there's maybe like two or three cops visible out the window and maybe like three guys standing outside the door. Mm -hmm. And that's it, you know, and it's just like, you know, and, and if, if it needs to be, McGarrett will get on there, you know, and say, hey, Dano, we're, you know, uh, we're. I'm, we're coming out to look at the map. Is everything okay? You know, or something like that. And you know what? I, I just noticed when McGarrett tells Carol that LB was in the manager's office the whole time, 
they do the same thing when you see him in the manager's office. They they track in on her face. Mm-hmm. So even that shot is maybe not exactly what happened. That's her thinking kind of like, oh, they got me. And he was just sitting there smoking a cigarette, talking to some cops, just relaxing. Yeah. Because the way McGarrett <laughs> describes it is like, he's like, he's still a prisoner. Yeah. You know, he's still a prisoner. So he's not just sitting there like with one leg up on a desk with like two cops standing by and they're smoking, talking about how great Hawaii is. You know, mm-hmm. he's a he's a lifetime prisoner, you know, so, so they're not going to treat him like that. So I'd like to that. I didn't realize that until I just saw that, that even that moment, we're seeing it from the point of view of what she thinks. Right. The the way they, oh, they treated him like a king. Yeah. Well, I still hope he got some noodles, but. I do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and part of the motivation of this is, so we do know that the tape that they were listening to about the the junkie confession, that's what spurred all this to happen in that 36 hours. And because Steve points out that, L.B. Barker could have gotten off with self-defense, but he didn't have any evidence to to hold up his side of the story because she had taken the gun and it was filled with blanks. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah, the thing is, is that he's supposed to be in jail for life, but this could put him out of jail because of the self-defense plea and the fact that he was basically set up to do it. Yeah, exactly. So so that's going to have a significant impact on his sentence because I love the very last scene as she's being led away because she says yes. that, oh, yes, they're not there. This isn't going to go too far with, you know, a convicted lifer and a self-serving cop. And then he reveals that he's actually been recording them the whole time. And so he has his, her confession on tape. I don't know how admissible that is, but, you know, it's what you find mm. Steve McGarrett gets what he wants. But yeah. as they're <laughs> they're leading her out, she's holding the picture of Townsend mm-hmm. and they start escorting LB out first and then they're they're escorting her out and in a rage she throws that picture out back at Steve and he like ma- uh-huh. I mean just matrixes it out of the way yeah and he, <laughs> he did a wonderful yeah. job but in uh-huh. the background you can see LB grinning because <laughs> he knows he, whatever happens from this moment he's getting out of prison a lot yes. sooner than she is yeah yeah he almost he almost loses it at once moment Mm-hmm. When it looks like before the tape recorder is revealed, um, I I think it's before the tape recorder is revealed, and and McGarrett has yeah. to grab and say, "Don't blow it, you you we got this now, we got this now, don't blow it," and um, yeah, she does a pretty good throw with that um that photo too. Mm-hmm. Now now there is a cut involved in the throw, but when she throws it, it goes pretty straight. It's a pretty good throw. Yeah. It's like if it had been a football, that would have been a spiral. Like it's just a real nice – and she spins it. She lets it – wah, and she throws it, and it goes right towards the camera. It's like nice, nice yeah. throw in there. I wonder, I wonder how much she practiced to make that throw because it was, wonder, it was yeah. aces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was another uh, – oh, oh, and there's, there's another – there's a, a moment I love too that I spotted the second time through where they're talking about L.B., you know, oh, LB killed McCabe and he probably killed Townsend. And of course, this is all coming from Carol. And and McGarrett says something along the lines of, you know, he's I, I forget exactly what the litany of, of charges is, but it's like, you know, he's you know, he's done forgery and bad checks and robbed a bank, but he's never even assaulted anyone or anything. Why would he why would this be? Why would he do this now? kind of thing and it's kind of like goes on to something else real quick but it's like mcgarrett right there is basically saying hey the guy you're claiming is this mad killer never did anything more than 
forge a couple things or try to rob a bank. And I'm yeah. not, not that robbing a bank is, I'm not saying I want everyone listening to go rob a bank, but I'm just saying he's he, he, violence. He's never committed, none of his crimes have been violence against other people. Yeah, he's and he's so all about B and E. He's he's not about yes. you know A and B. Yeah, and like, like she said, he can get it. He can get it anywhere. I know you're enjoying the conversation between me and Dan, but let's take a break to look at this excellent guest cast. Carol Rhodes is played by Beth Brickle. This is her second of two episodes. We also saw her in No Bottles, No Cans, No People. L.B. Parker is played by William Watson. This is his first of three episodes. He also appeared in episodes of Rat Patrol, High Chaparral, Bonanza, The Rookies, The New Perry Mason, Chopper One, Streets of San Francisco, MASH, Gunsmoke, The Rockford Files, Starsky and Hutch, Cannon, Chips, The Dukes of Hazard, Dallas, and Magnum P.I. He appeared in the movies It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, Sword and the Sorcerer, Stingray, The Hunting Party, Lawman, in the Heat of the Night, and Girl on a Chain Gang. And he appeared in the TV movies, The Marcus Nelson Murders, Man on the Outside, and The Force of Evil. And in an uncredited role, the phone company tech is Winston Char. This is his fifth of 18 episodes. I think this was actually footage from a previous episode that was used. And our writer is Abram S. Guinness. He did three episodes of Hawaii Five-O, but he also has writing credits for three episodes of Decoy, three episodes of Armstrong Circle Theater, 13 episodes of The Naked City, and two episodes of Route 66. He also has writing credits for the movie Gaily Gaily, and for the TV movie Egan. He also has producer credits for five episodes of Policewoman. <laughs> It's really good the first time through, but it's much better, I think, the second time when you know what's going on. But then, of course, you don't get the joy of the first time through when you think it's going to when you don't know where it's going. So it's tricky. I mean, I think what you have to do is you have to have an anvil drop on your head (laughs) and you have to have written down somewhere your name and maybe some ID to remember who you are in case you lose all your memory and watch this Hawaii Five-0. Yes, definitely. Because well, and I I will say this this episode is like previous episodes that I've seen, and probably from you know this point on in uh, later seasons, in that there's that twist where you figure out what's going on, so it's already the first watch. It's a good episode, but mm-hmm. when you watch it after that, be, even knowing what's coming, it's still a good episode. Yes, and so many times you'll watch things movies television tv episodes or whatever and you'll you'll get the big twist the big reveal and you're like oh that was so cool but when you watch it again it just doesn't hold up as well because you know the twist this doesn't Mm. do that now you have something Mm. different to watch for and it's it's still just as entertaining because i i think the joy like uh say if you're watching like a murder mystery where you get to the end and you go oh that was clever is, is usually with something like that they're putting in a couple specific clues and once you know what those clues are, when you watch it a second time, it, you're basically watching the same thing. Just there are two or three moments where you're going, ah, there, ah, mm-hmm. there. Whereas this, from the you know the, the moment it begins, like basically from the moment I think she walks into the room where he's looking at the map, you're you're you really can watch it again completely fresh, and then watch it again because you probably missed something the second time you were watching. Not that I'm saying you need to sit down and watch this three times in a row, but, but it does, it does reward, you know, one time watch Carol. 
the next time watch McGarrett. Mm-hmm. The next, the next time, try to piece together the way the. No, no, I'm not saying watch it four times. Maybe I am. Um, the um, next time, try to piece together sort of the way what they're they're saying versus what we're seeing, and how you know. And it's it's really, I I really would love that. I I honestly, when I got to the end of it, I thought the second time, I thought I they must have they must have known right because there's so much interesting stuff when you go back and watch it the second time to see. They must have known, like it couldn't have been like a surprise where they're like, hey, this really worked, <laughs> you know, but, but then I, the, the, the reason why I say that is because this isn't a, this isn't like a motion picture where like people spent six months or a year of their life. This would have been something where it was probably written relatively quickly and then done in a couple of weeks or maybe mm-hmm. less, you know, so, so in there, there wouldn't have been a lot of time to sit around and go, now, what we're playing for the audience is this, but what we want you to play for McGarrett is this, and what your character, you know, it would have been just do it. And they do it really well. Yes. Yeah. I was surprised. I was, I had, like I said, I had no idea what was going to happen in the episode. And when it came up at the end and there was a twist to Rooney, I suddenly had to watch it again because everything, the whole face of the episode changes. And it, it they do it just so well. And I think that reflects on... A few things. One, I mean, by now we're in season four, so obviously the production crew has gelled. The cast, for the most part, has gelled. They, those people know their their characters, their roles. You know, they always manage to get really good guest stars that come in. Yes. Beth Brickle, who plays Carol, she was amazing. She's good. In this, she is a, she is a, astounding because she's she she she's alternately just like you just want to oh and not in a bad way i just you just want to grab her and go oh i'm gonna give you a squeeze um in a good way in a nice boy way in a nice boy and maybe not a nice boy way hey we're all grown-ups here you know um but but um uh, uh, but, but, but she's, she's also, she's, 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 she's sexy, but she also has a bit of an innocence, but she also has a bit of a screwball. Yeah. To, I guess, and I she, guess like most people, huh? Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's a very layered multifaceted <laughs> mm-hmm. character and it depends and she, on what she wants to project at that moment. Yes. And she's just brilliant at it. And they, they do have a, a knack for getting quality scripts. This script was actually written by, um, Abram S. Guinness, and this is his first episode for Hawaii Five-0. He actually wow. wrote three episodes. And the director, um, this is his second episode that he directed oh, for yes. Hawaii Five-0. It's Alf Kjellin, I Kjellin, think. yes. I know the name. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, they, they managed to get people in there that know what they're doing and can turn mm-hmm. this stuff out. And I imagine when they got the script, they got the whole script so they could be like, yes, and here's where, this yeah. is the point. This is the payoff point we're working towards. This is what mm-hmm. you need to have in mind. And they do yeah. it beautifully. And, and and like I said, now that we're at the end, if w- the the all the stuff with the case and the killing and the and the mystery and the and the, and the thieving and the blanks and the guns and the da da da, it does all make sense. Mm-hmm. But the way it's presented and the way it's broken up, the first time you watch it, it really does feel like a, a it's a kind of a feels like a jumble. Mm-hmm. It's it's only on a on a repeated viewing. Um, and and that's kind of the way it's working too. I think is I mean because she's there and she's getting a little sauced, and he's just kind of presenting her with things as if he's like, well, I just happen to be looking at this file and this was in here. What do you think about this? And it's not quite chronological, and it's sort of over here and it's over there and it's doing this and it's doing that. And and it um, 
I, I really like it because it doesn't um, it doesn't uh, there, there's never a feel that they're, they're sort of pandering to an audience or patronizing us in any way. They're mm-hmm. just saying, here's here's what's happening. Catch up. Here's and the ride. You, hands and feet inside yes. for the duration. Good luck. Yes, exactly. And and I the, and the only thing with an episode like this is I think this is an episode, you know, so, so obviously some episodes of TV shows from this time period work best when you can only watch them once and then you never see them again. But something like this, I would think you'd immediately want to watch again, if, especially if you're a fan, just to see. I mean, I wonder I wonder if that happened. I'd love if anyone's listening. If you watched this when it originally aired, were you like, did you sit there and go, oh, yeah? Or did you think like, oh, I'm not, I need to see that again? Yeah, could you imagine like getting to the end and that huge twist and the, the, the double twist, basically, the, that huge payoff? And then thinking, I'm going to have to wait until summer reruns yes. before I can watch it again, knowing what I know. That had to have been mm. brutal. Had to have been And brutal. here's hoping here's hoping I remember half of what I <laughs> want to try to look yes. for. Cause yeah, because this, this aired in February. So you had a good, oh. what, three or four months? Yeah, you got March, April, May to June. Yeah, you got like four months, three, four months to, to, to <laughs> wait there. Ouch, ouch. Occasionally, I look around the world we live in right at this moment, and it depresses the living daylights out of me. But then, every once in a while, watching Hawaii Five O, and then getting to watch it again, and laughing at you fools back in 1972. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. I love you all. I wasn't alive myself, but I hear it was great. Me too. That's what I heard. But uh, I, I hope I hope you all have watched it, and you you got you got the same sort of joy I did out of it. And I th- I think Chris did. I I'm suddenly I'm, I'm gonna suddenly I I I uh, I'm, I I I didn't mean to uh, imply. I hope I know you like this episode very much. I do. I mean, it's my favorite for a reason. Yes. And when it came up to season four, this was the first episode I thought of when I went and looked through the episode mm-hmm. list, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I loved that episode. That episode yeah. was so good. And it holds up. No matter how many yes, times you watch it, it's still going to be good. Great well, episode. Great it episode. is. It's a fabulous episode. Now you know why it's my favorite. So if that is everything, <laughs> then Dan, yeah. why don't you tell us where we can find you online? Okay. Uh, we got my podcast, Eventually Super Train, which uh, uh, the wonderful Kristen has been on, I think, if I remember correctly. If I'm thinking of He's- the same Kristen. Yeah, I think I think I've been on there once or twice. A few times, a few yeah, times. Yeah. And and right right now at this moment we are discussing uh, my good friend uh, author historian uh, Bon Vivant uh, Amanda Reyes and I are talking about the show Lucan uh, from 1977-78 about a wolf boy. Uh, I'm talking about Gemini Man with Ben Murphy, the great where he plays Sam Casey, the Invisible Man from around the same time as Lucan. And myself and my friend Tim S. Turner are talking about uh, a show called Video Game All-Stars, which was kind of like a public cable access show from 1983 from Denver about video arcades. And um, that show is almost done, and we got another brand-new old show on the horizon, um, uh, which I won't won't ruin, but uh, I think everyone will like it. There's that. I've got my Happy Days podcast, Rocking All Week with You. I'm in between season six and seven right now. And I just finished the Brace of Minute by Minute podcast covering a bunch of horror movies. Um, boy, that took forever doing those. But I'm done. <laughs> and they were fun. And, um, yeah, and there are those. And I'm also on the Made for TV Mayhem show with Amanda and our friend Nate, uh, Nate Johnson, who's on uh, Hysteria Continues. Um, and uh, we – I think we've got an episode going up shortly 
but I forgot what it's about. Made for TV movies, basically. And my, my most recent book, which came out about a year and a half ago, is From Beverly Hills to Hooterville, Exploring TV's Heading Verse, 1962 to 1971. It's huge. Use it as a doorstop if you don't like it. You know, get some use out of it. All right? But it's a great book, I think. So enjoy. Go on Amazon. Pick, a, pick up a copy today. So that's what's happening here. Yes, it is a great book. It makes a great do- doorstop, but it also makes a great read. So Thank you. just Thank keep you. that in mind. Thanks so much for joining me yeah. yet again to be tortured by my yeah. favorite episode. This one was less to... torture. I mean, when you start off with Gavin McLeod in a prison shower, I mean, it can only go uphill from there. <laughs> I keep expecting him to return. Yes. Maybe it's Sad- a different character. Sadly, no. Sadly, no. But uh, uh, yes, thank you so much for joining me. And yes. I look forward to you coming back in season five. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Thank you. Thank you. You know, that's the way I want you to go. With a big fat lie still in your mouth. And that is episode 49 of Become Dano. Two very clever episodes, I think, and two very entertaining episodes. And I hope you found this episode entertaining as well. Thank you for listening. You know, I always appreciate your ears. And thank you so much to Dan Budnick for once again joining me to discuss my favorite episode of this season. He is such a good sport. I put him through so much. So be sure to check out everything he is currently doing. And if you want to know what I'm currently doing, you can check me out online at akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Dano. You can also check me out at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Be sure to check out the Patreon. And if you're not entirely convinced that I am a bad person, I can change your mind if you follow me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So mind how you pick up your gastropods. And don't hate the player, hate the game. Until next time. Aloha!